The movie Braveheart is an interesting and partially historical movie about the reaction of two kinds of Scots to the brutal, oppressive tyranny of England. Full disclosure, my ancestors come from the English side of the border, and this is the ancient home of the Stricklands, and I am sure that they were involved somehow in the whole Braveheart story, although not on the good guy side. I'm sure they thought they were good guys. One group of Scots in this story is represented by William Wallace. His bride was murdered by a petty officer in the occupying English forces. Another of the Scots was represented by Robert the Bruce, who eventually became king of Scotland. Wallace had nothing to lose. Bruce had everything to lose. Wallace fought and died for his beloved Scotland and the freedom that he believed in. Bruce fought and eventually also died because everybody does for his beloved position, castle, and lands. The movie powerfully and graphically, by the way, it is not a movie for the light of heart. The movie powerfully portrayed what sacrifices are called for in the pursuit of glory. Now, everyone lives for glory. Everyone. We live to glorify self, or we live to glorify someone or something else. Wallace is rightly remembered as a hero of freedom. Bruce is remembered as the answer to a trivia question. Who restored the monarchy to Scotland in the 14th century? Likewise, Matthew 15 is a study in the reactions of two kinds of people. Those whose glory is in danger because of the veiled God showing His true colors in the person of Jesus Christ. And those who are uninterested in glory for themselves but desire to be close to the freedom of that cannot come from politics, but can only come from the King of Kings. Now, as you remember in chapter 13, Matthew strongly points to the hiddenness of the good news and of Christ Himself by giving a sermon on the parables. Chapter 14 then goes and shows the reaction of people to Jesus who was at least partially veiled. Now, in chapter 15 takes the next step. Here we see the specific reactions of two kinds of people, black and white. Those who have something to lose, for whom Christ hidden, is hidden behind their willfully blinded eyes. And those who have nothing to lose, who run to Him without shame to the only one who can help them. More importantly even than that, in chapter 15, what we see is Jesus' reaction to these people and the groups that they represent. I want to tell our hearts tonight, have nothing to lose when pursuing Jesus. 
Tonight, we're going to look at people who have something to lose. They're desperately trying to hang on to something. Their pride, their possessions, or even their piety. Yes, did you catch those three Ps, by the way? (coughs) And because they are holding on so tightly to what they have, God can't put anything else into their hands or their hearts. Then, on the other hand, we'll see people who have nothing to lose. And so they offer Jesus their empty hands and asks Him to fill it. They will take whatever Jesus offers because they know it's better than everything they've got. So have nothing to lose when you are pursuing Jesus. The first group that we encounter tonight are those who have caught on that Jesus' brand of Judaism is different than their own. And their hands and their hearts are clenched tight. Let's look. Matthew 15, 1-9. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." Far different from the Isaiah quote we were reading this morning, eh? At risk in this conversation is the power or the position of interpretation of God's Word. The Pharisees claim to own the chair from which the Bible is rightly interpreted. What we say goes. But famously, they don't practice what they preach. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus says. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. But do not do the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. For example, here in our passage, if you don't want to provide for your parents, you can nicely skirt God's law by just declaring that what you would support them with is korban or given to God. Now, it flabbergasts me what kind of mental contortion you have to force yourself into to give lip service to honoring God by directly disobeying what He has commanded you to do. Now, Jesus, obviously the wisest and most knowledgeable person in the universe nails them when he said in verse 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, bow down by teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Again, at point here is that the Pharisees wanted to maintain control of their power. They wanted to grasp on and hold on to this power and not let go. They were not interested in listening to Jesus or whatever it was that He wanted to say. 
And so often, this power that we claim is our futile efforts to hold on to my little petty kingdom in this area or that area. And we're willing to fight anybody who treads on our ground. Have nothing to lose in your pursuit of Jesus. Now, I'm preaching to myself here. One of the dangers I have fallen to over and over again in the last 44 years is this need to be right. I'm right about this. Now, listen. We must strive to know God. We must strive and work and labor to understand His words and even our own hearts with all of our might. Amen. However, for the Christian and Greg Burtnett, when knowledge puffs up, it causes us to stand above or to look down on other people. And that is the problem. It's holding on to this little kingdom that I have set up. So what do we do then? Instead, allow your knowledge of God to be as one as a friend. A big friend. One that isn't easily offended by our questions. And when you do, you will have nothing to lose when others challenge you. You'll welcome opportunities to strengthen what you know is correct as you pursue God. And if you're wrong, you'll be happy to be corrected. And this attitude will endear you both to man and to God. So have nothing to lose. Don't hold your fists tight holding on to these little petty kingdoms that we have when you're pursuing Him. Now, this dialogue with the Pharisees and scribes is still fresh, and so Jesus and His buddies go inside to talk about it. Verse 10, And He called the people to Him and said to them, Hear and understand. Listen. Pay attention. I'm telling you something important. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of a mouth that this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with ceremonially unclean hands does not defile anyone. Pastor Greg, don't you know that you offended someone when you talked about sin? Well, of course I do. I was the first person I offended. I mean, let's, let's be clear here. This is the good news. This is the gospel. But the good news is predicated on the fact that there's bad news. And my sinful heart gets rebuked every week. Lord willing, hopefully more often than that. Now listen, you and I must take every opportunity not to be offensive in our presentation of the good news. 
But we also must not hold back what is true just because we're afraid someone might not like it. Now, I'm surprised at myself that I was shocked by what happened recently. Someone posted something. This woman used to come to church here and she moved and she posted something. And so I thought, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to send her a message and not put something on her Facebook. She unfriended me. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you do. You pray for that person. And you don't get unnecessarily grabbing onto your kingdom. She offended me. Well, you know what? Did she offend me? Yeah, she did. But her offense was not at me. It was at my king. And he's a big boy. He can take care of himself, right? I don't need to get all huffy about it. And I pray for her soul. And here, in this passage right here, we see two clear reasons why scribes and Pharisees and why former members of grace and even current members of grace get offended by the gospel. Number one, God didn't plant them. Every plant that my Heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Clearly, God's hand is not active in their hearts and mind. They do not belong to Him because He did not cause them to belong. Paul goes on to say in the same vein that the mind set on the flesh cannot please God. This is important to grasp, my friends, because while we're loving those around us who are believers and unbelievers offended by the gospel, we must remember that it is God who is going to work. It is God the Spirit who works through us, but it is Him who works, who breaks down stony walls. The second thing we need to remember why people are so easily offended by the good news is that they are willfully blind. Jesus says, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Now what we need to understand is blindness in Scripture usually is willful blindness. Someone who chooses not to see. Wow, it's dark in here. And this often results in the curse of then not ever being able to see. So, if you one of these willfully blind person, and someone comes along and they're better at being blind on purpose than you are, they end up being the leader. All right, all right, no murmuring about current politicians. Peter comments on this reality when he says that people deliberately overlook this fact. One person was commenting, one pastor was commenting on that Greek text and he said it's best translated, dumb on purpose. I thought, I'm going to use that. Just did. But, verse 18, verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now, we don't want to miss something very important here. Jesus' point is that what comes from a person, that is what defiles them. Not what they eat. Which is really good, because good pork ribs, you know, it's proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. 
And the fact is they were offended at this teaching shows that their heart is not right with God, but they are still stuck on the idea that they have got to grasp on to whatever little petty kingdom they have. Now, perhaps your petty little kingdom isn't that you have to be right all the time. Maybe your petty little kingdom isn't that you need to be the one who's in charge of interpretation. Maybe your petty little kingdom is that you have to control onto your kids or that you don't have control of your kids and you desperately want it. Maybe your petty little kingdom is just ball of bitterness that is hanging on like a dead weight going into the abyss. In your pursuit of Jesus, in your walk through the valley of the shadow of death, hold these things lightly. Drop them. Get rid of them. Have nothing to lose when you are pursuing Jesus. Have nothing to lose when it comes to your pride. When it comes to those things that defile you, hand them to Jesus. Give them to Christ. Depend on Him. Have confidence in Him. Trust in His promises so that you by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the purifying of His Word, by the prayers of God's people, so that you can then lose all those things that have been holding you back. Run to the people who love you and want to help you. Let them go. It's painful. Ask me, I know. common saying among Christians for millennia, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. Unless you're talking about one of the few essentials of the faith, salvation by grace through faith, authority of Scripture, deity of God the Son and God the Spirit, unless you're talking about one of these, we must hold, we must hold on to these beliefs but the rest we must hold on lightly. We must pursue unity, not at the expense of truth, but we must pursue unity because that is how Jesus says people would recognize us by our love for one another. So, Matthew shifts. He moves from these who are holding on to their kingdoms and not letting them go, and he moves to a woman who is mad in her pursuit of Jesus. This woman has absolutely nothing to lose, and it's one of my two absolute favorite miracle stories, healing stories in the whole Bible. Starts in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, we've got to set this up. Jesus is taking his friends on a spiritual retreat. They left Israel. They want to go to a foreign land where no one will recognize them. And they want to get away. While they're peacefully sitting down doing what you do on a spiritual retreat, the, this woman, this person who is 
part of a people who are the enemies of the people of God comes running up, yelling at Jesus and his friends. Now, when you're after peace and quiet, and you got some woman coming, running after you, yelling at you, this is not on the menu. But her yelling was not some inane babbling. Mercy. Mercy is what she asked for. Mercy is us not getting what we do deserve. She was not asking, she was not making any claim upon Jesus except that of please. Secondly, she called him Lord. She recognized his position of authority and she even correctly identifies Jesus as the rightful heir of the man who at one time in the past oppressed her people, King David. And she's happy to come to this man because she knows he can help. And she's not asking for something outrageously awesome like a brand new Ford F-250. She isn't asking for Taj Mahal or the Sixer Castle in England. She's asking Jesus to heal her daughter. Most of the people in this room know what that kind of prayer is all about, don't we? But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not one word. Send her away. If you're not going to cure her, kid, make her leave us alone. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the people of Israel. Jesus is nothing if he's not missional. Jesus is nothing if he is not intentional. He reminds his followers that his job is to serve those who belong to the people of God. And this woman just might be one of the people of God, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Nothing is going to get in the way of a mama who thinks that she can find help for her little child. Lord, help me. Now, don't be pious Sunday school here. This, this is an offensive paragraph. This should make you think. Paul says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus takes someone who calls upon the name of the Lord and says, dog. This is meant to catch your attention. If there were neon lights available in the first century, this would have had neon lights. Dog. You've got to catch the, the feeling of this statement. Now, I don't care what culture you come from. Someone calls you a dog. That's not a nice thing. It's not a compliment. How did she respond? A dog? Yep. If you want to call me a dog, I don't care. Just save my little girl. 
The mother here makes clear that she's not asking for tri-tips. She just wants a little crumb off the garlic toast. That's all she wants. You can save my girl. All it will take is a word. Just one word. Oh, woman, great is your faith. She was obviously one of the sheep of the people of Israel. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Here's the point. Anyone, everyone, even if they are an enemy of the people of God. I understand Richard Dawkins is going through some very serious health issues right now. And it got out. And there are Christians praying that Richard Dawkins would be healed. I bet that guy doesn't know what to do with that. But you know what? If God can save my father's son, he can save Richard Dawkins. Amen? And we should pray that he saves Richard Dawkins' soul. Even if an enemy of the people of God, even if there's some lady from Hicksville, Alabama, even if they're interrupting something important, anyone and everyone can have their prayers answered by the Lord. You can too. Jesus called this woman a dog so that you would know that your prayers also can be answered. If Jesus will offer to such a person as this who has no claim on him, what is he going to do for, the ch- for one of his children? Of course he's going to hear and answer your prayers. He will answer all of your prayers offered when you have nothing to lose. Have as much to lose when you approach Jesus as the woman with the demonized daughter. Cross all kinds of cultural barriers and taboo. Single-mindedly focus on Jesus solving the need that you need. Have nothing to lose when you are pursuing Jesus. This woman had nothing so dangerous as pride holding on to her petty little kingdom. You want to call me a dog? I don't care. Call me Fido. Fine, just heal my girl. And my friends, over and over and over again throughout God's word, God proves that God loves a desperate soul. The desperate crowds that were around him had nothing to lose. They were poor. They were disenfranchised. They didn't know what franchise means. The crowd were the underfed and the overworked. They sought Jesus because there was no pride for them to lose. They had nothing in their hands. And so verse 29, we find out what God does. Jesus went on from there and He walked beside the Sea of Galilee and He went up on the mountain and He sat down there. And great crowds came to Him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at His feet and He healed them so that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, this is such a wonderful passage. The crowd saw what Jesus had done. They heard what Jesus had said, and they wondered. Man, they couldn't understand their political and religious leaders 
those who definitely had something to lose and they were holding on to, they couldn't understand why don't they recognize Jesus as the Messiah or at least a prophet. And they wondered. In other words, they thought about it kind of scratching their heads, puzzled. So the confusion that they were sensing sent them guessing. Some of them believed, some of them didn't. Some of them didn't have time for the effort. But Matthew says they glorified Yahweh. They had nothing to lose, so they turned to the Lord. Have nothing to lose, my friends, when you go before your king, because he has everything to give. Don't worry about those who are really thinking about Jesus, even if they come up with some off-the-wall, crazy idea. Because if they really are wondering, if they really are going hard after God, they might come up with something weird, but God will turn them around. And who's to say all your theology is right either? But the problem, again, is that you and I come with our agendas. We come with our cultural myoptices. Is that a word? Cultural, be myoptic. We have on our glasses. And these glasses shape what we see. So whenever anybody comes up to me, whenever somebody says, you know, I'm just not getting this or I just don't know, my answer is always the same. Go to the Gospels. Meet Jesus. Find out what the God's Word says about who Jesus is. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. Go to the Gospels because Jesus is the most powerful, the wisest, the most creative, the most interesting person who has ever lived. Go to the Gospels. Go to the Source. Ask God the Spirit to introduce to you God the Son. And then the most misunderstood and ignored person in the universe, not in the universe, let me change that, in our culture, will come to you and meet you. For example, you will read, starting in verse 32, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread for such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat again and went to the region of Magadan. Jesus had compassion on them. He had compassion. And this compassion this time bled over into the preaching and the healing. And this compassion then again effused over into meeting a basic need, food. Now, I want us to note, I know you've heard this from me and probably other pastors as well, Jesus never did any miracles merely to show off. Jesus 
and any of the prophets never did a miracle just to say, oh, look how cool I am. And in fact, we read in Matthew 13 a couple weeks ago that Jesus did not do many miracles in a particular place because of their unbelief. He didn't want to give them a wrong view of who He is and what He's doing by doing some magic tricks. He wants people to recognize as the one who was sent of the Father. Here, evidently, they gave glory to Yahweh having glorified the God of Israel and certainly in need of food, they got that food so that they can recognize Him. Now, this is how much I think of Scripture. I believe, we'll find out. 10,000 years, you can tell me if I'm wrong or not. I think in the next 10 or 20,000 years, we're going to meet most of the people who were there and we're going to find them in heaven because they said, dude, wow, that guy must be the Messiah. Let's follow him. Now, that's my opinion. I'm not going to hold you to that. But I think it's true because of what Jesus did and because of the point that they had nothing to hold on to. They had nothing to lose while they were pursuing Jesus. Be like the people who ate the bread and the fish. Don't allow your pride of place to get between you and Jesus. Whatever it is you think is your claim to fame, let it go. So that it won't stand in the way of responding to Jesus when He asks you to lose that pride. When Jesus says, I have promises. I want to give you answers to your prayer. Don't hold your fists so tight that he can't pry them open to fill them. Don't hold your heart so closed that he can't pry it open and give you the blessings you need. Don't allow your longing to be right. Get between you and Jesus. Whenever it is you're hanging on to, whatever it is you're hanging on to, so that you can be better than someone else, let it go. Or you won't be right with Jesus as long as you have that. Don't allow your stuff. Don't allow your circumstances. Don't allow your relationships stand between you and Jesus. Oh, my friends, you can take nothing to heaven that does not fit in your heart. So all the stuff that's going to burn up, let it go. It doesn't matter. William Wallace left his land. William Wallace left his dreams of a peaceful life. He left his relative comfort because he wanted to live and die for something more important than his own earthly life. And when one is willing to live and die holding nothing back, the world will notice. King Edward noticed and had William Wallace put to death. Your enemies will notice and they will mock you. Jesus will notice and he will see what acts of righteousness you do for him in secret. And my friends, so will your own heart. And in training your heart not to hold on too tightly, you will be enabled to give up that which you cannot keep in order to gain that which you cannot lose. Have nothing 
to lose in your pursuit of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, we come to you knowing that you are the only one who can fill our needs. You are the only one who can fill our hearts. Let us be the men and women of God who seek you. And Lord, we cannot do it apart from your Holy Spirit. So Spirit, come. Indwell your people so that we might be the men and women of God you have created us to be. We love you, Jesus. Amen.